or, well, it's lesson number 11. We only have one more after today, so I, I'll say early. Thank you all for being a part of this class and look forward to seeing you next week. And if you think of it during the week, pray for uh, preparation for the last lesson on Sunday and then be praying for the folks that are going to be teaching the classes uh, in the next quarter. There is a handout as per usual, so if that's a help to you, please uh, feel free to get that. They put the lectern inside the door now. Meanwhile, um, let's take our Bibles and turn to the 45th chapter of Genesis. Okay, so telling you that this is the next to the last lesson is why uh, it's to some extent why we're skipping from Genesis 35, where we were last week, 10 chapters, to um, Genesis chapter 45. A lot of things we could say about the intervening chapters. Um, if you were to do a statistical analysis, sometimes these things are interesting, um, you would find that there are a number of those chapters, once you hit chapter 35 and start moving forward, all right? So from chapter 36 up until later in the book, 45, 46, somewhere in there, I've forgotten exactly where I cut that off, I think maybe chapter 46, uh, you would find a, a, a good handful of chapters that don't mention Jacob at all. He's just not mentioned, and the reason, of course, is because the emphasis of the story switches to Joseph. Those of you who are in the Joseph class before this know that. Um, it's also true that you get a number of chapters where you have little vignettes. You have little, little uh, references, like when the, the sons come back from Egypt and they interact with their father. So you have some chapters like that where it doesn't play a major, he doesn't play a major role. But I think I would be comfortable with saying this. You're by no means done with Jacob, because you're going to find out next week the whole thing comes to an end, and he's very prominent in the final chapters of Genesis, chapter 47, 48, uh, 49, 50, um, even into 50, where um, his death is recorded at the end of chapter 49, but even in chapter 50, it's kind of a... So he's never too far from the thing, but it's also true, and we need to recognize this, that the emphasis is changing now from Jacob to the 12. And I think I mentioned that earlier because you got to remember all of this story is being told to us in the context of the story of redemption that Genesis is developing and that the Bible as a whole is developing. So it's not going to mire on any one thing and it's not always going to give us all the information that we would like to have and I hope I get a chance to talk about that very statement that I just made. Not getting all the information always you'd like to have in today's lesson. So that's a sort of a uh, wet your appetites type of a thing. I want to read a few verses today to give us some background. So join me in chapter 45, verse 4, because if you weren't in the Joseph uh, series, there's, there's, what I'm going to read now is referenced later in the chapter, so I think it would be good to hear this. So, Joseph said to his brothers, now where, what is the context of this, where are we? We're on their second visit when their father sends them back to buy grain the second time. And this becomes the time, technically it's the time, because they start back, but then the steward overtakes them and they come back again. So it's really their third audience, but their second trip with Joseph. And this is the time when he reveals himself to them, okay? You know that he did not do that on the first time. He didn't really even do it on the second time in the main audience that he had with them. But when they came back, then he did. This is what we're reading about. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So what I really want you to watch in this when I'm reading is what he tells them about the purpose of all of this that he's learned over all these years. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me, this is now what they're to tell his father, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father. Notice the emphasis on what they are to tell Jacob. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. So this is what they are to tell Jacob. Let's join it back now in verse 25. Let's skip over to there. Now, so this begins... They're coming back and they get home. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, so here it is, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's their entree statement. That's not everything. That's That's what they spit out. Put yourself in their situation for a moment. How are they gonna get into all this? (laughs) So they spit that part out. They say more later, but the first thing that we see is is Jacob's reaction to this. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, so now they give him a fuller report of what we just read, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. We're going to read down through chapter 46, verse 7. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters 
and his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of reading God's Word and underlying that for the privilege of having God's Word. And we're grateful that not only do we live in a day when the the Bible is complete, but we have it freely available to us. and, And we realize there are many places in the earth today where that's not true, either by reason of the Bible not existing in a translation for the people uh, in, that, in that particular area or simply because it's prohibited. It, there's persecution. The Word of God is, is not allowed. And here we sit on top of a, a huge privilege today. Help us to think about that a little bit as we enter into this Lord's Day. And the Bible is the centerpiece of what we're doing. And I pray, Lord, that you would just allow our hearts to be devoted and interested and attentive now to those things that you may have for us. Bless, give me freedom of speech and liberty here today to bring the lesson and to say those things and only those things that you uh, w- that would be profitable for us here today. And bless in the other places too where all the other classes are being taught and then on into our morning worship service. Bless our pastor. I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right, so... Our study is winding down. I've said that a number of times now, so you sort of have to pick and choose. And in looking at this, I thought that, all right, this is really sort of important because we're coming, what I've chosen to talk about this morning is really huge. It's it's a watershed moment, this move to Egypt. I first thought about titling this The Big Move, and um, it really is. I mean, that would have been a good title and, and maybe even a little bit more attention getting. But the move to Egypt gives you more information than that does. So I I finally decided in favor of this. Folks, I really don't know that I could overplay how big this is for Jacob. And so I'm going to try to give you some thoughts. And I have to apologize. In some places, the wording is very brief, occasionally terse, just because I'm trying to fit it all on one page so that, you know, it's a little easier to keep up with that way. So lots of times I know more of what I want to say than somebody just reading this cold would, would be able to take from it, but we do the best we can. There are three things that I've given you here to think about. First of all, it's late in life. And I just want you to think about that for a moment. Now, looking out over the audience, I suspect there are a number of people here who have had to make a big move later in life. And sometimes it comes because of retirement. So that's sort of by definition later in life. I would say to you here, probably we're later than that time frame in the, light of, in, the, in the life of Jacob. He's 130 years old, and he's going to live to 147. But if you go back and you, so you say, if a time I retire, well, when did you retire? <laughs> Are you, are you, uh, you know, if you retire at 50 and you get 17 more years, you didn't do that great. If you retire at 65 and you get 17 more years, you do pretty good. But in his case, um, you know, he's at 130. And if, if you go back and you read a lot of these um, stories relative to Jacob, particularly in the, ever since he lost Joseph, He's almost, in a sense, been preoccupied with the day of his death. You remember the same thing happened with Isaac, because so early it was that he said, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die. And that's when he brought those two boys in there, and that original deception occurred. 
with Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has had sort of a, a preoccupation with this. You'll see it come out even in what we, we have time to consider going on. So this is late in life, and it's just not a very easy thing to be discombobulated late in life. I, I could talk about this for a long time because, and I can't, I don't have the time to do that, but I think I could really get you in an understanding mode if you haven't already kind of figured all this out. I mean, we spent 31 years in central Pennsylvania, and uh, some of you have spent longer in places where you were, but I want to tell you right now, after 31 years in a place, this is a big deal. Fortunately, we had some familiarity with Greenville. We had both come to school here, and I was actually in this area for 12 or 13 years until I got done with everything I was doing and, and went to Illinois for four years. But you stop to think about what happens in 31 years. You have your doctors or doctor. <laughs> All this stuff just doesn't seem like much until you change it up. You know, you have your doctor, you have your mechanic, you have your plumber or your handyman or whatever. I mean, I could go on and on trying to illustrate this for you, but then all of a sudden you come into an area like this, and I don't know anybody, and the toilet runs. And you can't fix it. Well, you know, call some guy's going to charge you two or $300 to come in there and spend three seconds to, oh, what's this? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just very discombobulating. So it's late in life, but it also involves leaving the land of promise. I want you to think about that a little bit, because when I introduced this study for you, the, the title under which I introduced it was The Life of Jacob, and I subtitled it The Struggle for Blessing. Since the beginning, he has wanted and had an interest in this blessing, all of which, when you think about the Abrahamic covenant, centered in the land of promise. And so he's been in the land now, Roughly 30 years. He's finally gotten back from Paden Aram. He's where God wants him to be after the hiccups at Shechem and, and uh, uh, the other place there, whatever it was, not come to mind right now. But after those hiccups and after those years that he was delayed there or he delayed himself there, he's finally home. He's, he spent years and time with his father Isaac. He's, he's in the thing that every blessing or, or reiteration of this covenant that God has given him talks about the land. And it's not, for no, it's not for no reason that we refer to it as the land of promise. He's talking about leaving that. After all those years of hungering for it and finally being there. And it's also home, and I was sort of illustrating that in the first. But think about this. Uh, he's made it home. And originally, that was Beersheba, where he stops on the way down to Egypt. That's a significant place. But uh, when he comes back, his father is living not in Beersheba, but in Hebron, where uh, Mamre, or Hebron, or Kirjath Arba is the Canaanite name for it, where Abraham, that was kind of Abraham's center. And, uh, but he's been here, and if you think about it, also in Hebron was where Machpelah, in that area is where Machpelah was. You know what Machpelah was to them? Anybody? The family cemetery. And that might not mean much to you until you start thinking about that a little bit more. And I, I realize that we're all helter-skelter in this day in which we live now, but they weren't that way then, and some of these things meant a lot more, and they probably should mean a lot more to us now than they do, but nevertheless, I won't get off on that tangent. But 
if you think about Machpelah, Abraham was buried there in Sarah. So his grandparents. Isaac and Rebekah were buried there. He buried Leah there. Did he bury Rachel there? That's not a trick question, just yes or no. No. He didn't bury Rachel there because she died along the way, just shy of Bethlehem, and we saw that in the reading last time. But this is home, and, and this is where his roots are in so many ways. So this is huge. I'm just trying to get us into the frame of mind where we can appreciate this. So Jacob receives from God something that I think, you can take this point away from the lesson today, and if you didn't get anything else, I think this is worth having right here. This may be worth the price of coming. That when you find yourself in a situation where you face a major decision like this, and it's a little bit discombobulating, and it's a little bit, you're a little uncertain of yourself, and maybe even dragging your feet a little bit about the thing, God will give you the assurance if not the nudge that you need to know that, yes, this really is what he wants you to do. And fortunately, we find Jacob at this point in his life, there's no dithering. He responds with complete obedience. So I want to develop this by talking about three thoughts here with us today. First of all, this is absolutely stunning news that we have read about. That's not an overplay either. Now, you think about this, think about this a little bit against the backdrop of what we know to be true about the father of the prodigal son. What does it tell us there? He saw him afar off. Do you remember that detail in the story? Which tells me something. It tells me that his heart, his heart constantly yearned after the boy and that he was watching. It's a little bit like Isaac when he went out into the field at the end of the day to meditate, and that was the day that he saw the camels coming. He was probably meditating about, when are they going to come back? Are they going to be bringing my wife? And he's looking for that. And so you can believe that Jacob is looking for this because he's concerned about two people in that group of 11. And that's why I phrased this 11. Far as Jacob knows, he only has 11 sons remaining. But remember, Simeon was held over on that previous trip, put him in ward until Benjamin showed up. And he reluctantly sent Benjamin. So you can believe he was out there. I mean, you can believe his eyes were out on stems looking to see, is Simeon there? Is Benjamin in particular there? And he sees them. And so he sees them and he's relieved about that. But then they come and they spit this out and they tell him, Joseph is alive. Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the, the land of Egypt. I personally, I think they'd probably do a pretty good job with that. I mean, what would you say in that instance? I mean, they give the necessary information right up front. After he gets over the shock, they can tell him more, but <laughs> they're not only going to have to tell him more about what Jake, uh, Joseph told him, they're going to have to explain all this, and there's going to be some explaining to do. So he sees these boys, he's relieved. And he hear, but then he hears this about Joseph, and what's the reaction? You know, the ESV does a really good job of this because it, it translates literally. It says his, hearts became, his heart became numb. And that's literally what this, this verb means, to become numb like this, in the sense almost of paralyzed. The idea behind it is, as I give you in the notes here, is it's a mental numbness it, you know, that almost translates into the physical. 
Have you ever been so, so just overwhelmed with something, just so shocked by something that you could hardly speak, that you could hardly, this is what this is describing. That's why, so from the shock of this, it's like he's, he's numb mentally, he doesn't know what to say, and he can hardly do anything. But you have this verse in Habakkuk 1.4 where it's the same word and they translate it paralyzed. And I thought that was interesting. This says, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So it's like he's paralyzed by this. Let me try to give you some thoughts here as well. Put yourself into his situation. It's been 20 years it's been 20 years since he was confronted with the apparent death of Joseph. How do we know this? Well, Joseph was 17. He spent 13 years in the Egyptian captivity. He was 30 when he stood before Pharaoh. There's been five years of, so we got, what are we working with? 13 and five, right? There's been five years of plenty and two years of famine. So now we're looking at 20 years. 20 years. I, hate, I mean, to the, to the degree that you can accept horrible news like this, he's accepted it. Although, and I pointed this out in that chapter when we looked at it, when we were, were studying the life of Joseph, I think that he suspected these, these sons a little bit. I think he suspected that they... If he didn't suspect foul play, he suspected they weren't giving him the whole story. But if you think about this for a moment, if you were a detective trying to solve a murder case, would you have a case with Joseph? Would you have any kind of a case for which you could charge a crime? No, because you know what you lack? What kind of evidence? The key evidence. You lack a body. You can't prove he was killed. So do you think that even though we're not told this in the story, given human nature and what we know of ourselves being what it is, do you think that he probably, I mean, they produced the robe and said, is this your son's robe? And he did come to the conclusion, oh my, he's been torn by a wild beast. But do you think he ever sent any of the people out, probably not those sons, but... Any household people out to search? I'll bet. I would. I mean, would you be willing just to kind of, I mean, you know, even people that are lost overboard, I mean, they search for them several days at least, hoping to find them. So, you know, there's no closure. And this is a horrible thing. You think about this. So the idea of him being alive, but... Now think about something you probably would never think of either. Not only that he was alive, but in Egypt? How did he get into Egypt? And not only that he's in Egypt, but he's the governor of the land, no less. I mean, he's not just some lackey that's sweeping the floors. Not that you're a lackey if you sweep the, sweep the floors, but that didn't mean any harm, but you know what I'm trying to say. I mean, he's not just a, a household servant. He's the governor of the land. He is, in fact, the person that his sons in those two trips have been dealing with. And when they come back from the first one, they say, oh, he spoke harshly to us. I mean, this is just, this is beyond the pale, really, is what I say there. It's just, in fact, 
if you look at the expression that he uses, he says, it is enough. And that's a really telling expression in the Old Testament when you come across that exact wording. It's very terse in Hebrew. But when you look at this, I mean, it's basically just the word that's translated enough is the word that means great. Rob, for those of you who know the vocabulary a little bit, um, that's an easy word to remember, but it's a word that means great, but it's great in the sense of abundant or numerous. To the point of being overwhelming. So, for example, did I give you this verse? Yes. Elijah says this. But he himself went a day's dirty. So he's, he's met the prophets of Baal. He's killed the prophets of Baal. He's had this overwhelming victory. You'd think he could kind of sit back and rest for a while. But no, Jezebel is after him. And so he takes off. He flees. He himself went a day's journey in the wilderness, came, sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. He was just overwhelmed. That's what he meant. In other words, this is so abundant, this is so numerous, all this flood of emotion and, and discouragement and so forth, it's just overwhelming. And so that's what this word, or that's what this is meaning. And so right as he's in this state of mental paralysis, if not physical paralysis, doesn't know what to think, doesn't know what to say, two things happen. One is he sees the wagons, and we didn't read this detail, it doesn't mention it down here, but he sees something else. Let's drop or go up a little bit. Verse 21, chapter 45, the sons of Joseph did so, and Joseph gave them wagons. Remember, that was Pharaoh who gave that authorization and that command. According to the commandment of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver, and five changes of clothes. Look now, to his father, he sent as follows. Watch this, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. So he's looking at all of this, he's looking at these wagons. You didn't see wagons in Canaan like this. These are Egyptian wagons. And he's looking at these 20, donkeys loaded out. Don't forget, they'd been two years in famine. Things were scarce. He sees all this loaded out and probably in that moment of time knows exactly how much money he sent with them, knows exactly that they could never have come by that through the means that they had at their disposal. And so all of this works together. As I tried to phrase it for you here, the wagons to Joseph and to Pharaoh, it's a practical touch. You've got a man, 130 years old. You've got little kids, wives, and all this. How are you going to transport them? So he sends wagons. But you know, folks, really from God's perspective, it's a tender touch. Why? Because God knows about our weakness. And he's numb. He can't believe this. The King, the King James translates this, his heart became faint. It's like he kind of, he's struggling to believe this. Do you ever struggle with believing God? <laughs> I think it's about every day, right? When we're confronted with these things and God wants us, and we know that, that the whole genius of faith is that we walk by faith, not by sight. Otherwise, it's no more faith. In fact, the author of the Hebrews, as you know, says it this way, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. Now that's easy, right? 
No. No. No, it's much easier. Seeing is believing in the world. But in God's realm, believing is seeing. And so, to me, this is God's tender touch. You remember how the Bible tells us, he remembers our frame, he knows we're dust. He knows this is going to be a huge struggle for Jacob. All right, we have to move along. So, here's this kind of centerpiece of the lesson I wanted to to talk about a little bit. This is going to require great assurance to Jacob. Not only has he gotten this shell-shocking news, But now then, we're supposed to come down to Egypt? Oh, really? After all these years of being in Canaan and struggling to get there, and it's kind of interesting, even though they give the explanation, it's one of the reasons I read this, there's more information here than just, Joseph would like you to come visit. No, Joseph says, you've got five more years of famine. You need to get down here, and I've sent wagons to carry you, because otherwise you're going to come to poverty in the land of Canaan. You're not going to make it. And God, not only this, but God in his wisdom looked out and saw all of this and was way ahead of us all and sent me down here to preserve you with a great deliverance. But still, this is tough when you think about Egypt. So what do we know about Egypt? Well, Abraham, it was a misstep. In the interest of time, I'm not going to look at all these references, but 1210. You remember, there was famine in the land. Both of these incidences that I'm giving you, his grandfather and his father, they both struggled with famine, just like there is famine now. And their temptation was to go down into Egypt. Abraham did it, got down there and told a fib about Sarah and got in trouble. Remember that? Do you remember that? Kind of lost his testimony at the very least. And God says, get out of here and go back to Bethel where you made the altar and get back into fellowship here. Isaac, in the same context, I will read this one for you, in the, in the context of famine, also looked at doing that, and God said, no, don't do that. God was very clear with him. Chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, there was famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him. So God makes a special a point and said, do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land. That was always their way. They were pilgrims. They were sojourners. Their, their lifestyle was nomadic, really, when you get right down to it, even though if you've ever seen those oriental tents, <laughs> it's not a little bit more than an army pup tent. They were capable of being for a while in a place. But it holds a foreboding for him to go to Egypt with this background that he knows. Furthermore, there's a natural misgiving about this. Like I've already illustrated, it's leaving home, it's leaving the land of promise. It's all counterintuitive. None of it makes real sense. Even despite what Joseph has said, it just it goes against the grain. It goes against everything he's ever thought, really. And so God comes to him in verse number three and says what he needs to say. Do not be afraid. Boy, I'll tell you. Those might not sound like much, but we go back and study the Gospels and find out how many times that's exactly what Jesus said to his disciples, fear not. And we fear a lot. I mean, you think a fear like that, you know, is, is, is a murderer in the house or something like that, and you really fear. 
but there's a lot of stuff that we fear just because we don't have the faith and and we but you know we're we're human and we mess up all the time. So God says, do not be afraid, and then hits him with a fourfold promise. Now, I wish there were more time to talk about each of these four, but we're going to look. So first of all, this first statement is huge. And the, the operative word is the one that you see there uh, in bold. Look at what he says to him. Jacob, Jacob, he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father Isaac. Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. Here's the first of the four. For there I will make you into a great nation. So that's how this is going to work. How are they ever going to become a great nation? Have Have you thought about that? I mean... Like I told you before, they're living as strangers in the land of Canaan. They don't own any land except for that portion up there at Succoth and Shechem. Succoth was the other one, and it would come. The little portion up there they bought. They don't own anything. They're surrounded by hostile people. Their lifestyle is, as I said, nomadic. How are they going to become a, a nation so numerous that God would use the figure of speech? It'll be like the sand on the seashore and like the stars in the heaven. How's that ever going to happen? They aren't, I mean, they're, they have means, but they're not like a king or wealthy in that sense. They have means. <clears throat> but, you know, God had already said this back to Abraham, and you have to assume that Jacob knows these things, but, you know, this is already going back a long time, and nothing much has happened on this, and everything that God has said to Jacob has to do with the land of promise. And so when he says back in Genesis chapter 15, God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with, here's something important to hear if you turn, great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. And then he says, And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, or as the King James says, not yet full. And beloved, here's another thing that we're reminded of by that last little phrase there, that God is hardly ever, if at all, only working on one front. We look at it that way because that's how our life is. We, our life is self-centered. And so we think everything God's doing must be to figure out how we're going. You know, have you ever, you know, when you pray for certain things, you say, well, how's the Lord going to answer that? And probably there's as many people praying for the other thing or something different than what I just prayed for. And... But he now explains it to him. That, that little word there is a huge piece of information. Well, we can't keep talking. Uh, he says, I will go down with you. And you know that that was kind of the formula for God's presence, of course. But it meant, it meant that God would be with him and bless him. So it's God's blessing. And also then he says, I will bring you up again. So in other words, this is what he said to him back in 2815. This is, this is going all the way back to Bethel. And In a sense, Bethel was a microcosm. If you think about this, he gave him an experience earlier in life 
proved that he could and would do it so that this big experience later in life when he says the very same thing to him again, Jacob can remember he can and will do that. What am I talking about? He went to Paden Aram and God said, I will bring you back again. I will. He met him at Bethel on his way out and he said, I will be with you, I will bless you, and I will not forsake you until I accomplish what I have told you I will accomplish and bring you back again. God had already done this once in his life. I could, I could talk to you about that too. Things that God has done, and you don't realize it at the time, but it's preparation for something bigger later. I wish I had time to illustrate that for you. But then he gives him this other little piece of information, and this is, I spent a lot of time every time I read this. I spent a lot of time, again, thinking about this. The Lord speaks about Joseph kind of nonchalantly. <laughs> you know, God knew this all along that Joseph was alive, didn't he? Or did the brothers have to tell God that too? No, God knew this all along. And you haven't heard a peep out of God about it. He's let Jacob live under this cloud 20 years. And I guess my question to you is, I sometimes have to remind myself that seems harsh, but that is not harsh. Because if you remember the way William Cooper put it in his song, God works in a mysterious ways. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And there are many, many times when God is at work and he just simply does not choose to give us all the information. What would have happened, let me counter-illustrate, what would have happened if the butler had not forgotten to tell Pharaoh, you know how I heard about this dream, this Hebrew guy, and remember what Joseph said to him, Joseph said, when you tell him this, Remember me to him because I was sold here as a slave from the land of Canaan. If he hadn't forgotten that and had told Pharaoh that, and I told you this when we were studying the life of, of, of Joseph, in all probability, he would have been delivered out of that prison and would have been sent back to rectify that wrong because they were in his debt at that point. But he forgets. Why? It will, well, I mean, from a human standpoint, if he had followed through on that and that had happened, it would have ruined the whole plan, right? It would have ruined everything that God was planning to do with the famine and with Joseph being exalted to be the governor of the land. And here's my point, folks. When you grow through it, it doesn't seem friendly and it doesn't seem kind and it, it seems severe. And when you finally get through it on the other side, whether he shows you here or he will show us there, we will look back on it and say, he did all things well. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What's he mean by that? Well, death. Well, he's been thinking about death all this time now. So, but it's closure. I mean, you not only now know about Joseph, but you're going to go and you're going to see him and you're going to be so restored and intimate in your fellowship with him that he will be by your bedside. When you come to draw your last breath, 
He'll close your eyes. He'll take care of you. You know, it's a big difference between what Joseph, or I'm sorry, what Jacob said. I, I will read this one to you because this is really, to me, striking. When, when he first heard this news about Joseph, it says in verse 35 of chapter 37, Yes, all his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. That was his prediction. This loss of this boy to whom he was looking, especially thinking that these other sons were not qualified to lead the family, and Reuben had disqualified himself. He's so shaken up by this. He's in such mourning. He says, it's going to bring me to my last. Doesn't quite work out that way, does it? When you go over and see what, he, what, ha, what we read in chapter 49, verse 33, instead, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Verse 1 of chapter 50 says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Quite a bit different what God really worked out than what Joseph was lived his life foreboding. And here's the point. This is not an easy point. This is not a point I like. But you have to say it. God's going to reveal to us what we need to know when we need to know it. And if he chooses to reveal more, well, praise the Lord. Think about your life. Think about the many things that have happened to you that you wish you understood. And you don't. But you will. And when you do, and when I do, we won't have any questions about it. Well, lots of times we do now. Well, he responds with full obedience, which at this point in his life, you'd sure hope that that's what he does, but he doesn't disappoint. And I, I gave you something to think about here. Somebody has said you can, you can divide Jacob's life into three parts, both geographically and spiritually. Haran, where he largely operated in the carnal realm, fighting fire with fire. Canaan, where those 30 years that he'd been in Canaan since he came back, learning the lessons of obedience and growth. And the last 17 years in Egypt were by faith because, you know, God said, this is how I'm going to fulfill my promises. Still couldn't see it yet. That's how all they were. According to the writer to the Hebrews in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, they, these guys never saw it. They died. The promises were still afar off. They just had the promises. But then when we read this, then Jacob set out. So that, this is the obedience to God that we're talking about and is the fruit of faith in God. Just want to leave you with this. All this foreboding about being at the end of life and all of this and didn't realize he had 17 more years that God was going to give him. That's, a, that's quite a few years in the context of his entire life. And they were his best. I mean, let's just look at these two verses ever so quickly. 47 verse 9, 
tells us that when he stood before Pharaoh, he was 130 years old. And then verse 28 of the chapter says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. But I wanted you to see this. What does he say to Pharaoh in verse 9? The days of the years of my sojourning, pilgrimage, are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. He has a little bit of a dour outlook. Most of this he brought on himself, right? But how does he finish? He finishes with 17 years of incredible blessing and plenty and fulfillment. It might be a trite saying, but it's true. God really has saved the best for last. And sometimes it happens in this life and we see it, and other times, no. But we do know it's true because I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Heaven's going to be a wonderful day. Our Father, bless us as we finish up now and move to our next service. In Jesus' name, amen.